You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 14th of August, 2018, on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show, as Donald Trump continues his war against the media, in his words, the enemy of the people, the Boston Globe is coordinating a campaign of editorials, taking a stand against the attacks from the White House. My guests, Juliette Foster and James Boyce, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including... Uh, Marosa, what's going on? I just saw in the news that you're thinking about leaving. What happened? General Kelly what came happened? to me and said that you guys wanted me to leave. No, I, I, nobody even told me about it. Nobody. Wow. You know, they run a big operation, but I didn't know it. God yeah. Damn it. I don't love you leaving at all. A former aide to President Trump releases her new book, which coincides with recordings of her being fired, as her reputation is threatened. We'll look at what we've learned about the Trump administration from the affair. All that plus the Economist Intelligence Unit says Vienna is the world's most livable city. Monocle says it's Munich. What's your pick? And how do you rank a city, really? That's all to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Bache. So welcome to Midori House. My guests today are journalist and broadcaster Juliet Foster and James Boyce, U.S. policy analyst and author of Clinton's War on Terror. Welcome both to the program and back to Midori House. We begin by turning our attention stateside, where the Boston Globe has proposed a coordinated editorial response, as it calls it, from media outlets and newspapers across the U.S. to Donald Trump's nonstop attacks on the press. The deputy managing editor for editorials at the Globe says we are not the enemy of the people, referring to how the president often characterizes journalists. So on Thursday this week, August the 16th, the Globe is asking editorial boards across the nation to hit out at what the newspaper called a dirty war against the free press. Juliet, perhaps we'll start with you. What do you make of this campaign? Uh, I don't think it'll make any difference. (laughs) It's a sort of blunt way of putting it. I mean, look, we can understand why they've done this because uh, the the anti-press rhetoric is quite poisonous. But then having said that, um, there's... There's nothing new in in what uh, Donald Trump has been heaping on them because this this rather nasty, unpleasant relationship started in the very beginning, in the early days. Because mm. when he when he taught, when he said, "Look, I want to um, stand as a candidate," he wasn't taken seriously. Everybody laughed at him and so on and so forth. Then, of course, you went through the the candidate selection procedure. He was attacked. Then he's the last man standing, and it kind of ratcheted up from his point of view. It became more and more hostile. And the problem is that for Donald Trump. This isn't just a critical press. He's not he's not talking about having a press which is somehow has it has integrity. He sees it as very personal. It's almost as if it's now reached the point where I'm I'm really hitting you guys hard that you've had to do this. You know, I'm punching you where it hurts and this is why you've had to do this to make this pathetic attempt to somehow undermine me, but I'm gonna win. And it's it is very sad. It has come to this. But then this is the kind of president that you're dealing with. He sees this as something very personal. It's a personal fight with the press. And because we know that Donald Trump likes to spin things, he would probably just defend it on the grounds of, look, you know, I want to make sure that we have a cleaner, fairer media for the American public to actually live with. But um, the reason why I'm sceptical about this um the position of the of the Boston Globe is that yes, I, I understand what they're trying to do, 
but the bottom line is not is not going to make much difference in terms mm. of Donald Trump supporters and the media isn't just newspapers anymore people aren't necessarily relying on the papers to get their news they're going to the internet and that's where it gets a bit more deep dark and dangerous because we've got lots of people uh, propagating various theories which are very conspiratorial and um, slightly more dangerous in the tone of some of them so congratulations press but it's not going to make much difference James, uh, would you take that up? Are the editorial pages sort of not as powerful as they were in the old days? Well, I think I think one of the reasons I would certainly agree with with much of what uh, Juliet's just been saying is the idea that the reason it won't make much difference is that you've got a very uh, tribal effect in America at the moment. Uh, Barack Obama was a fine president, but one of the things that he was most renowned for, which was patently not true, is the idea that he said famously, "There's no red state." or blue states, there's only the United States. Well, the United States is heavily divided, not only between states, but in states. Um, Donald Trump's uh, uh, detractors, uh, to be frank, will not be reading the editorial pages of the Boston Globe, the New York Times, the Washington Post, or any other newspapers which uh, are going to be taking part in this. In fact, I think that what this effort will do, unfortunately, is to reinforce Donald Trump's narrative that, look, the elite the mainstream media are against us. It's a pack mentality. I am now here standing uh, defending you, uh, the non-elite, effectively. Um, in many ways, uh, only is this not new for Donald Trump, but it's not new within the United States. You can go back to the presidency of uh, Richard Nixon, for example. Mm. He declared mm. war against the media. Uh, he, uh, he banned the, uh, uh, the purchasing of the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, at the White House. He tried to dismiss uh, uh, reporters. Uh, he famously assaulted his press secretary and uh, pushed him back into the room to go and deal with the situation. So the idea of a war on the press by a Republican president who is being pursued relentlessly by Pulitzer Prize winning authors, as uh, the New York Times uh, was awarded just a few months ago, I, I think is nothing new. And we saw how that played out with Richard Nixon's presidency. Mm. Television and cable news in the US uh, is an incredibly powerful tool. Uh, do you think uh, magazines and newspapers still hold sway in the same way they always have? Or, or what? what is their rule sort of to get back uh, against Trump here? Well, it's an interesting question. It's one that you compose for the media generally um, in, in, in developed societies. I mean, look, they, they, can, they, can, they, can, they can punch back in whatever way they want. But is it really going to make that much difference? No, it comes back to that. In terms of what the role of the media is, <laughs> well, what what is that? I mean, apart from the apart from reporting things, but then of course you're always going to get the question about um, the depth of integrity. Mm. And let's be clear about this: whenever the uh, whenever whenever journalists do make mistakes, Trump is very quick to seize on that and and blow it up and basically sell to say to his supporters, "Look, this is this is typical. This proves that I have said that you have a dishonest media. It doesn't report the facts." I mean, comically. When he came to the United Kingdom, there was a, a rumour going around that he stood up the Queen, that he kept her waiting. Although I think it was a Times report who said, well, actually, he, he didn't keep her waiting. He was bang on time. But because of her body language, it was misconstrued. Mm. And again, Trump seizes on things like that. And it, it, it does raise the question that in this extremely hostile environment, what is the role of the, the mainstream press, the traditional press, the magazines and the newspapers? But then again... Is it really Trump who has raised that question? Isn't it our, uh, our consumption of, of news from, from, the, from the internet which has raised that mm. question? It's no, it's no coincidence that you've actually had some newspapers, notably the Independent in this country, they, they are online. Why? Because it's economically best, it's, it's an economically best, better way to function. Mm. You don't have the overheads that you would have with the newspaper. It's cheaper to do things online. You've got a lot of newspapers who are actually introducing paywalls. Why are they doing these paywalls with, 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 what the, with the content that they're offering? 
just in case the hard copy has to close down. At least you've got that footprint on the internet. That's the way forward. But it's very hard to say in 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, what is the role of the media? It will never lose its traditional role. The question is, mm. do people really want to want 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 to absorb, to, to consume what it is that is delivered, particularly if there is a particular a specific view which they take and it is challenged. If the, if the barriers are up there, if they refuse to, to, to see the alternative perspective, then it doesn't matter how, how good the investigation, they're not interested, they will shut down. I often think about the traditional media and the way they have to operate uh, with Trump in office um, and thinking perhaps about the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, those outlets that are that are quite rigorous in their methods. Uh, James, are they having to do more to take more liberties in this day and age to sort of be heard? Uh, Trump likes to say the failing New York Times, but in reality, they're doing quite well. You're absolutely right. Um, I, I'm not sure that they have to take liberties. In fact, I think they have to be even more careful. Mm. Um, you know, famously uh, at the height of water gate when uh, Woodward and Bernstein were reporting, uh, uh, they had to make sure that every source had got, you know, every, every story had three sources, effectively. Right. Now, you know, we move forward. Uh, now, there's an awful lot of uh, scurrilous material on on the internet, for example, uh, and the Drudge Report, which famously helped bring down Bill Clinton, didn't need any sourcing, quite frankly. Right. Once you become a journalist working on the, the internet on, on a freelance basis, effectively, uh, the idea of sourcing and, and mm. integrity has, has been diminished. But what I'd suggest the New York Times, the Washington Post are having to do, because of the the constant stream of attack from the White House, is to double down to make sure that every story they put out there uh, is uh, is absolutely watertight, because they understand the risks involved if they are seen to have made a mistake, because it will feed completely into Trump's narrative that, look, you see, they're lying, it's the fake media, it's mm. the fake news, etc., etc. There's been a wonderful series uh, on uh, on recently the uh, detailing the uh, the New York Times uh, pursuits and investigation of Donald Trump right. over the course of the first uh, year of his presidency, a real fly on the wall effect, if you will, looking at how it is that the New York Times has, on some occasions, has not lived up to that promise and the idea that has come short on one or two occasions. And, you know, how you go about reporting a president whose relationship with the truth is problematic at best, mm. and yet you are going to be held to a higher standard argument right. than the president. That's a remarkable situation we find ourselves mm. in, I think. Uh, absolutely. I mean, in that sense, it has raised, raised the way that you approach a job. But, uh, again, if... <sighs> If if you if you if you if you research your sources thoroughly, if you get two, three, four, five sources which are effectively saying the same thing, you can report it. But because of the president that you're dealing with, it will get slapped down. It will still be interpreted by him as an example of a fake news media because it doesn't really change things because it is his narrative amongst his supporters that dominates. It's not going to shift them. I wonder about this term, uh, fake news, you just mentioned. Um, Donald Trump has almost taken this to, to mean something else now. Mm-hmm. I, when I well, think basically, of, yeah. for him, fake news means you're, you're, you're saying horrible things about me. Right. You're not being nice about me. That's one of the reasons why he kept Amarusa in, because he loved having her around, because she massaged his ego. Mm. So that's what, that's, what, that's what good journalism is for Donald Trump. It says nice things about him. Is that the, the most dangerous uh, part about his attack, perhaps, is, is that re-characterization of that term? 
term I took it to mean um, the false content that was on places like Facebook and that. He just he just has used it as anything he doesn't like. Anything that he doesn't like. And, right. and, and you're absolutely correct. It should be about the quality of information mm. that is out there. It should be about material which is honest, it is truthful, it is well sourced. These are the tools of basic journalism. And that's the thing, that in Donald Trump's world, in his mind, he's turned it around. It is anything which is hostile to me. And what's so scary is that there are people who are buying into it because they feel, well, you know, the reason why they're hostile to him, they're saying these untruths, is because they don't like him. They never wanted yeah. him there in the first place because they wanted Hillary. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think what's problematic now is it's gone beyond the fake news concept. Recently, it's moved to a point where Donald Trump is now calling the press the enemy of the people. Mm. Now, that is such a shift. It's a paradigm it's shift, I think, because it now it moves out of the idea that these people are disagreeing with for political reasons. Right. Now they're basically being accused of treason. Mm. And you are seeing also, and this came out of the campaign, we saw it very much targeted against people like Katie Turr, for example, who was reporting for NBC on the campaign. We're now seeing members of the mainstream media press, CNN, for example, CBS, and NBC, being targeted by the president at rallies the the audience are being turned upon them uh, in a pack mentality and you can see that this could very well easily have you know very very problematic outcomes the idea that you know are, are the press going to be physically attacked for right. example uh, are they get, they are actually getting uh, protection you know when you have the the press in the United States, the very remit of which is protected by the First Amendment, being need to have physical protection because of attacks upon them through the supporters by the president of the United right. States. Mm. That is an unprecedented situation, especially when we see the press now winning Pulitzer Prizes for their coverage of this presidency. People mm. like Maggie Haberman, for example, people like Peter Baker at the New York Times. These reporters are going out of their way to basically expose this presidency. They're being uh, afforded the ultimate accolades within uh, within the media. And yet uh, we see time and again the president using them as whipping boys uh, to basically try and whip up his own support. Sure. And let's not forget as well that, uh, and you're absolutely right in this, because the, the the, the United Nations also picked up on this as well. They, they actually stressed that they were very concerned about this expression, enemy of the people. And tragically, it has not just been used in the United States by the president. It has been used by the media in this country, in this case, the judges, mm. because there was a Brexit ruling, which um, certain Brexit supporting members of the press in this country resented. Those judges, their photographs were published on the front pages. I think it was the Daily, was it the Daily Telegraph or the Daily Mail. Mm. But one of these Brexit supporting newspapers, their photographs were there. And above the photographs, that headline, enemy of the people. It is a very loaded expression mm. and, and a connotation underscoring it, treason. These people are a danger to the state. And my, my real worry... As if, we, as if uh, God forbid, that a journalist is, is either injured or killed at one of these Trump's rally, Trump rallies doing what they doing their job. How would the president respond? I am so sceptical. My fear is that Donald Trump would probably say, well, it's very unfortunate. Uh, but uh, really and truly, the person who did it, well, clearly uh, they were they were very unhinged. But maybe perhaps if this particular publication hadn't wound them up in the first place, then maybe that person would never have been killed or injured. Mm. God forbid it should come to that. But because of the way that um, this this president has taken the narrative, because of this war with the media, a war which, in fairness to the press, it hasn't really been looking for, you cannot rule out any possibility. And to the point uh, recently where Donald Trump even uh, reacted with surprise when learning that uh, journalists didn't already have protection uh, at some newsrooms. Uh, fascinating analysis 
analysis. I want to make sure we have time for everything today. So let's move on. Uh, we've mentioned uh, Omarosa, the former Trump aide Omarosa Manigo Newman, launching her new book today, Unhinged, a scathing look at the Trump administration. Today, the president called Miss Manigo Newman a dog on social media. For the launch of her book, uh, Omarosa has released two secret recordings about her being fired where her reputation is threatened by Chief of Staff John F. Kelly. She's also claimed to have heard an apprentice tape where Trump used the N-word. What did we discover uh, new about the administration in this book, James, if anything at all? Well, so far, it's it's perhaps a little early to tell. The book yeah. only has just come out. Uh, it's uh, already a lost leader in most uh, bookstores uh, around the country, uh, mm. already at half price. Uh, she's certainly doing a good job of touting it. Um, uh, she has this uh, uh, arsenal of tapes, uh, she yeah. claims, uh, at her disposal. Uh, so far, we've heard two of them. Um, quite frankly, what this woman was doing working at the White House in the first place is anybody's guess, quite frankly. Most people uh, would give their right arm and would need to be uh, very, very qualified to work in such proximity to the president. Uh, he himself, interestingly, has raised the question about what she was doing working there. Well, of course, uh, he employed her. Um, then the question, of course, is what was she doing recording uh, these conversations in the first place? What was John Kelly doing firing her in the Situation Room? I remind everybody listening that the Situation Room of the White House is not John Kelly's normal office. It is the most secure location possibly in the US. It's a, a bunker under the West Wing, a complex series of rooms where uh, the president, the national security team uh, meet regularly uh, to discuss the highest, most secret matters of state and international affairs. It's not somewhere where a former uh, apprentice TV star is, is taken uh, to be fired. In fact, one wonders whether John Kelly chose this location because there is such concern about people recording conversations in the White House that he perhaps felt that this was the one place where that wouldn't happen uh, because there is uh, an, uh, a voluntary code that people do not take uh, recording devices into the Situation Room. All recording devices, iPhones, for example, are uh, meant to be kept outside in a, effectively a lockbox. The fact that she violated that yeah. uh, is a serious uh, breach of national security, quite frankly. Um, I say that not in any way to detract from uh, what it is that she's alleging the White House was involved in. But by doing that, she has opened herself up to a whole series of, of valid criticism, which will come from the right, no doubt, irrespective of whatever it is that is in the book. And she, of course, joins a long line of people who've left the White House uh, and will doubtless continue to do so, who are going to make uh, uh, a decent amount of money, I think, by exposing the uh, uh, the foibles of this administration. Mm. The criticisms have come <clears throat> from not just from the right, but also the left as well, because uh, people have said um, a number of comments that look, this was a woman who um, lauded Donald Trump. She she says she was very proud to be his friend. Uh, we know that, that we've, we've seen the footage of him actually telling everybody how wonderful she was, etc., etc. So it does seem a little bit odd uh, from from that point of view that um, somebody who actually was one of Donald Trump's biggest fans then turns against him. Yeah. But also as well. Um, should we really be that surprised that uh, she illicitly recorded the conversation uh, with John Kelly in the, the uh, Situation Room? Because remember, the Trump presidency is based on the idea of upending everything. The normal rules of the game yeah. don't apply. So in this sense, the fact that she recorded in the Situation Room and has presumably been recording everywhere else, along with all the other people who've mm. been recording, because clearly this is one of the things which has come out. If she could do this, who else in the food chain has been doing this? You know, who else is sitting on these potentially incendiary recordings which await, which they're waiting to drip feed into the system. So, mm. again, you have to see it as that. But, of course, it's a security breach. But then uh, 
when when Donald Trump um, a bit got his feet under the table and he he actually entertained the Japanese Prime Minister, uh, there were reports that apparently he actually pointed out. He, I think he entertained the, the the Japanese Prime Minister at the Marilango his, his Marilango base. He actually had a photograph of the guy carrying the biscuit with the UK. And I just thought that this guy needed to be anonymous given the precious cargo mm. that he's handling. <laughs> what do you make of how uh, Miss Manigos uh, Newman has handled this uh, other than um, recording uh, in the Situation Room and perhaps breaching a non-disclosure agreement, which apparently exists now in the White House? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, uh, Donald Trump and the administration have previously said that there were no non-disclosure agreements. Now Donald Trump has tweeted that there is. Uh, this document has emerged. Uh, most people who have seen it believe it is so loosely written that it could not be uh, legally uh, maintained or, or adhered to, quite frankly. Um, there's, there's no doubt, I think, that uh, what she's doing is, is quite politically uh, savvy and certainly uh, uh, savvy in terms of the ability to try and sell sell books. Uh, this idea that there now are tapes to back up uh, what she's suggesting is interesting. Um, I, I think the reason that, uh, and again, this, this picks up on Juliet's point, that people are thought to be recording one another is that there is such a sense of fear in this White House. That nobody trusts one another. Uh, this is a group of people, many of whom uh, have come to the White House without any political experience. Some people will remember the never Trump movement of the campaign and say, well, that obviously failed because Trump became president. I would contradict that and say, well, it absolutely worked because the reason that there is such inefficiency in this White House, that there is such amateurishness in this White House is because the people who would usually have come to work for a Republican president simply refused to endorse him on the campaign, refused to work for him in the White House and refused to be uh, tainted uh, by the affiliation with him. People who've come to work for Donald Trump have come away with a similar track record of feeling let down to, lied to, abused by. Uh, we've seen this example today. Uh, we've seen previous examples, people like Sean Spicer, for example. Mm. We've seen yeah. what's happened with Jim Comey. Reputations are being destroyed. And the idea that people are having to record one another speaks, I think, to the sense that people just do not trust this president to simply tell the truth and be honest about the events which have led to their uh, departure from the White House. Absolutely, because the thing is, he can't deny that he had that conversation with Amoruso, which is why he actually went from calling her a lowlife to today calling her a dog. Mm-hmm. And again, those those terms of reference that, he, that he's used against her, uh, you, you kind of think to yourself, well, maybe... Uh, the racial slurs that he has, um, which she she said he uses routinely, maybe there is some truth in that. Because again, a lot of commentators have picked up on the fact that he seems to save his worst insults for people of colour. And he's called this black woman a dog. So not very practical, really, is it? But... um, also, the reference that James made a few moments ago to these these NDAs, again, this is in keeping with Trump's style because this he has come out of the corporate arena where presenting NDAs to people you do business with, that is quite common. But the idea that you should actually bring it into the business of government and again, the quality of people who with whom he surrounds himself. This is the same Donald Trump who, when he was out on the road, um, he said, yeah, I'm going to get some of the best people working with me in Washington because he pledged that he was going to drain the swamp. So the inference there being that you had terrible people, low caliber people who couldn't deliver on the promise that, uh, that his, his, his predecessors had made. He was going to drain the swamp and bring in good people who could connect to the 
pop- to the population and who could deliver on his promises. And, you know, as James rightly said, a lot of these people, the ones who were brave enough to stay on, they've just said, you know what, having been here, I don't really want to be here. I don't want to be a part of this because it's it's not me. I don't like this president. Who's replacing them? You're having people like a Marusa who had no qualification. And that was an yeah. indictment of his judgment. What was she doing there apart from telling him he was wonderful and telling that to anybody else in the world? We also know from the Kelly tapes, even though it was stated in the very pragmatic sort of way, that she was disliked amongst the people she worked with. Right. You know, So this was an extension of her role in The Apprentice because she was the villainous character. She brought that villainy to the White House. It's just a joke. A big old reality TV joke, perhaps, in the White House. It it is like The Apprentice and and Celebrity Big Brother all rolled into one in the White House. And that's what makes it so tragic that this reality TV farce is being played out in the most powerful office in the world. It Mm. shouldn't be happening. It demeans America. America does not deserve to be demeaned like this. You are listening to Midori House. Here with me, Daniel Bates, Juliet Foster and James Boyce. Coming up next, what makes a city the most livable of all? Tired of seeing the same few tedious tourist haunts? Well, the Monocle Travel Guide series has stopped off in 30-plus cities and counting in order to dispense advice on travelling like a local. From the finest spot in which to sip a cocktail with a contact, work up a sweat or take a dip, our comprehensive guides are packed with tips, essays and tidbits for getting the very best from your destination. Monocle's Travel Guide series is published by Gestalten. We've recently added Mexico City and Zurich, Basel and Geneva to the library, with Athens and Helsinki coming soon and guides to Chicago and Hamburg following early next year. The Monocle Travel Guide series. Cities are fun. Let's explore. And finally today, let's talk about quality of life, a topic that Monocle holds very dear, of course, as we do with our annual quality of life issue detailing the most livable cities. This year, Munich topped our list. Other institutions do similar lists, although with different metrics. Vienna, for example, topped the rankings today from the Economist Intelligence Unit, named the most pleasant city to live in, beating out serial winner Melbourne. The worldwide list includes 140 cities, Damascus at the very bottom, uh, ranking them on a range of factors, including political and social stability, crime, education, access to health care, and, of course, public transit. Have either of you been to Munich or Vienna? What do you make of this? I've been to Vienna, and it was all very pleasant. And certainly if you want pastry, it's a nice place to hang out. Um, from a historical <laughs> point of view, it was interesting for me because, of course, it was a location for the, the Kennedy-Khrushchev uh, uh, meeting in 1961. I was surprised, though, that, uh, that Europe got such a high ranking. I think if you were to ask me the question, which I think you're about to lead on to ask me, yeah. my, I would, I would, I would uh, proffer Boston myself okay. uh, on the simple <laughs> basis that, you know, what makes a great city? Well, transportation, uh, the ability uh, to have a great work-life balance, great outside space, great sporting locations, uh, a great uh, a great media. Well, you know, Boston's got uh, the uh, the airport, which I think is a lot this, this, the closest international airport to uh, a major city. Uh, you've got uh, Fenway Park, where the great Red Sox play. Uh, the idea of the T system to allow people easy movement around. Uh, it's a really small city. Uh, it's a very uh, culturally diverse city. Uh, it's a uh, it's a 
a city which has great access to the United States and also back to the United Kingdom. Um, and of course, you've got Boston Common. Mm. So quite frankly, um, if I wasn't to be living in London, the greatest city on earth, I would certainly happy to uh, to bletch for Boston. Well, I haven't been yet because I pledged I would never go until I got into the Boston Marathon. So we're working on it. <laughs> we're working on it. But Julia, what makes a, a city livable? What, what rankings would you use? As we've said, there's different ones, very different ones. At uh, Monocle, we lean heavily on the quality of life, the joie de vivre, those types of things. But in, in this economist list, we've got three Canadian cities, we've got three Australian cities. So uh, looking more probably at um, economic faster, factors, safety, things like that. I mean, do you know what? This was the, this was the one subject I dreaded that we would get onto because oh, oh, first really? of all, I have, I've never been to um, Munich or Vienna. Okay, I, ha- I haven't been. I've been to Berlin, which I really liked because it's open spaces, incredibly friendly people, and I know this makes me sound like a, like a little Englander, but. People spoke English. Ah, yes. <laughs> easy to get around. It's very easy to get around because I do not speak a word of German. So, um, so I, I really enjoyed Berlin in the time that I was there. But I think that to form a, de- a definitive impression, it would be nice to live there for sure. a while, to really experience everything that it has to offer. And I haven't really done that. So in terms of um, in terms of cities, um, a hard one, but it's a very lazy choice for me. I'm going to say Bridgetown, Barbados. Okay. A, because my well, because um, my parents are from Barbados, and um, I, I I I went there as a as a child, and I I was there for over a month or something, and I was such a brat. I didn't actually appreciate the beauty of lovely beaches and kind of laid back heat, all this kind of stuff. I just remember these huge slugs, <laughs> and it just scared the living daylights out of me. So I, I'm ashamed to say this. I I remember looking at the calendars with my siblings. We were just marking the days when we'd uh. actually get get to Grantley Adams and fly back. But I've, I I went back years later when I could actually appreciate it a lot better because. For me, it was very personal. It was a chance to reconnect with my family, because um, you know we part of us. One group, one one branch of the family lived uh, lived in the United Kingdom. The other was was in the West Indies. But also reconnecting with my family also gave me the chance to find out a little bit more about us and where sure. we hailed from originally, which is supposedly Ireland. But I can't tell you whether it's the, the Republic or whether it's the North. But I love Bridgetown because. It's just really stupidly laid back. Nobody bothers mm. about anything. It's just nuts. <laughs> it's it's great. It's great. I mean, probably nice weather as well. Yeah, it's it's nice weather. But Bajans are incredibly laid back people, and it's it's um, it it almost reminds me in some ways of nineteen seventies Britain. But it's mm. but the good bits. I'll have to go. So culture, uh, nice weather, uh, a laid-back atmosphere, that, that factors on your list. Yeah, and Bajans are very mm. friendly as well. And I'm not saying that because I'm part Bajan. They are very, <laughs> very friendly. And it's just, you know, there they could be a volcano. It's like, hey, don't worry, it'll calm down in a bit. <laughs> I'll put it on my list. I was happy to see that my hometown uh, comes in at number eight, Toronto, where we have a bureau. And Calgary, where I spent half my life, comes in at number four, which I think... I really agree with. Probably one of my favorite places, access to the mountains, clean air, young people, a lot going on, good restaurant and cultural scene. So Calgary gets my pick today. That is it uh, for this edition of Midori House. Juliet Foster, James Boys, thank you so much for joining us. Join us tomorrow for Midori House, same time, 1800 London time. Later today, the Monocle Daily, all the day's top stories, 2200 with host Andrew Muller. I'm Daniel Bates. Thank you for listening and goodbye.